Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. People who crave space, freedom, adventure, and opportunities have long been attracted to Alaska. In July of 1996, I spoke with Milo Kopanen, who grew up in New York City, the son of Finnish immigrants, and who moved to a mountain ridge near Fairbanks, Alaska in 1952. At that time, land there was still open for homesteading. He located his 160 acres and filed a homestead on the ridge where he still lives. After several years there, in the mid-1950s, he returned to the lower 48 states to earn a Ph.D. Yet the magnet of Alaska pulled him back where he became a university professor and a member of the Alaskan legislature. He's been there ever since. I met with Nilo Kopanen in his kitchen and asked him about the dream that originally drew him north to Alaska. There was this sort of tendency, my parents even even in the Depression got a small piece out in the country so they could build a sauna and all their friends helped put the sauna together. The wood came from a, another friend of theirs who was a, uh, had a little mortuary business, all the stone being delivered from Vermont in uh, wooden crates. Mm-hmm. So they just sawed up the wooden crates and built a sauna out of them. Uh, and this was in New York City? Yeah. And partly, when I was very small, we, we lived on my mother's uncle's farm in Trumanburg and the Finger Lakes country and all that. I used to love to just take off. My parents trusted me. I'd go into the woods and, you know, take for half a day or longer. That's the way I grew up. And then there was something about Alaska that was a magnet? No. Not, not then. I wasn't even thinking about Alaska. Of course, I re- read all the stories. I read a lot of different things. Uh, I did go to Finland with the American Friends Service Committee in 1948, and the Karelians, 400,000 of them, had left Karelia when uh, the Russians took over. Ninety percent of Finland in those days was uh, forest and rural country, and they were essentially homestead, and we were helping build clear land and build cabins in uh, eastern Finland. So that was a very seminal experience, you know, the work camp as a mm-hmm. collective community dedicated to work, but also just the lifestyle there. So that made a big impression on, on me. And then at that time, you were about 21. 20, mm-hmm. yeah, 48 and just 20 years mm-hmm. old. I came back, I came to New York and went to work in the shipyard and also for church world service. I wanted eventually to go uh, on to Antioch College. I knew people out there, Ernest and right. Elizabeth Morgan. I stayed with them in the 46, I think, 45. I was admitted, and then they wanted $600 for tuition. I didn't have $600. <laughs> and I'd been active in core Committee on Racial Equality early on. So I went to Wilberforce State College, which is a black college. I was the first white, so-called white graduate. It was during that period that I started thinking very much of Alaska. And it would sort of just fit it in with everything that I'd done in Finland and what I'd 
grown up uh, thinking, what it's oriented toward. You came up here in, near Fairbanks in 1951 and applied mm -hmm. to Homestead 160 acres. Yeah, well, actually, we filed on the Homestead in 52. We didn't, mm -hmm. we, <laughs> we left the East Coast in, in 51. We took the opportunity of visiting friends and and that's large F and small F, and uh, other members of the farmers' union. People were active in co-ops. I'd grown mm -hmm. up in a co-op and all the rest of that. And I was very interested in, in uh, what was then called intentional communities, and we stopped at several of those. So we only got here in about March of 52. We came to Fairbanks because the only graduate, the alumni of Antioch College, there were two families here. One lived in Juneau, and in those days you could not drive to Juneau. You and still the, other, the others were here, the, the Griffiths, and um, we stayed with them for a short while and found a number of um, Finns, uh, people of Finnish ancestry, even friends of my parents uh, here, and they helped uh, uh, us find a place out in Chattanooga Flats, and we lived out there. And I worked for the mining company as an electrician, which I'd, my father had been an electrician. I'd worked in the shipyards in Hoboken with him, and a judge as a ship. Partly, I wanted to go someplace where there weren't so many people and weren't. Uh, Levittown was coming up, and, and uh, subdivisions were going all over the place. And I told people that when I came back from Finland and they'd torn up the streetcars in, uh, in New York, that broke my last tie with New York. <laughs> mm -hmm. at, at some point, though, when you were quasi-settled here in Fairbanks, you wanted to go back for further graduate education. I only wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to get a degree because I started, I was very interested in education as well as other mm -hmm. things. And I did, we did try to start a friend's school, but at the, in the 50s we had too few friends and also we got totally involved with the big, uh, organizing what became the Native Land Claims uh, Movement. And, uh, but my own personal ambitions, uh, <clears throat> at least three of us, four of us in the friends meeting uh, got our teacher certificate so we could have a, a, uh, end up teaching but rather than being able to set up friends' school, we all started teaching in public school. And you ended up teaching at the University of Alaska. Well, I taught fifth grade in the public school. Then I was interested in anthropology and linguistics. One of the members of the meeting was a linguist, uh, Gordon Marsh, and an anthropologist. And I was always interested in linguistics from the viewpoint of, you know, historical linguistics, how language changed, and also mm -hmm. how different types of language organize the world for you in different ways. I was very aware of that, you know, growing up speaking Finnish. Finnish, for example, doesn't have gender. I was startlingly aware, I remember, the fact that English organized everything in terms of opposites, you know, black, white, in, out, up, down, mm -hmm. man, woman, good, evil, which always struck me as being a very artificial and constricted way of thinking. I mean, yeah. it, it distorted people's thinking and they were not aware of it. Even well, as a kid, I was aware of that. But anyway. Well, talk uh, about some other examples of that. That's, that's interesting, about how other languages organize in different ways, different from the way English does for us. The agglutative languages, which Finno-Ugric is one, Turkic, including Mongol, Kalki, uh, including the Eskimo, 
Eskimo and Chukchi Aleut language. And um, the languages which were uh, based on Ainu, Ainu was much closer to Finno Ugric than, than the other languages which are Korean and Japanese. But one of the interesting things we found here when we gave kids the WISC, the Wexler Intelligence Test, that native kids from Inupiaq and Yupik families where the language is still spoken. By and large, principally boys but also girls, uh, would cool the math test. And actually it wasn't the numbers that they were good at, but it was the block test, which gives you you know, different series of blocks, pictures of blocks from one direction you're supposed mm -hmm. to one and pick the other. The spatial organization test. The spatial organization. And um, they were always cool that, which seemed rather confusing. But I remember also that growing up in New York, if I went to a place one time, I could go there again by any number of different routes. I mean, mm -hmm. it's sort of the world is organized mm -hmm. uh, spatially. And uh, for instance, in, in Finnish, you start out with a word stem and you put suffixes on it. Mm -hmm. There's only about 16 so-called cases in Finnish, 15. Uh, they argue about it. Hungarian's got about 26. And most of those uh, refer, you know, this is a cup uh, using a loan word, kuppi. Kuppi pöydästä, I take it from the table. Ponen se pöydän on top of the table, pöydälle, into the table. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. You know, that the, uh, the reference are primarily spatial. Well, do you feel that an ability to locate a place, that, as you mentioned in your own personal example, is language-based, or is it more the kind of intelligence that an individual uh, is born with? Or, or some well, of each? I, I really don't believe in the... Uh, nurture uh, nature argument because mm -hmm. uh, all nature is nurture <laughs> yeah. extended over a span of time. I think that those languages tend to focus on that and therefore that ability becomes, becomes uh, more developed, developed. is more developed. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the binary languages, um, you know, which are all principally Indo-European uh, languages, I think are Certainly, you know, they drop this elaborate structure we call logic, which is really nothing but grammar. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, but it does force people into compartmentalizing things in terms of opposites. It also means organizing, conceptualizing the world in terms of a hierarchy, you know, so Linnaean hierarchy of opposite little boxes, all right. of which spring up with more right. and more little boxes. It's very powerful. It makes decision-making very much more rapid and much easier. Not always right. I, th I think the story of Alexander, you know, when he uh, took over the uh, city of Gordius, and the, and the uh, priests invited him into the temple, and here was this elaborate knot, woven knot, which mm -hmm. actually is the knot that you see in many, much uh, ancient uh, iconography which, uh, um, to me, I think that what they symbolize was the interconnectedness of everything in the world. The priest told Alexander that uh, anyone who could untie this knot could conquer the world. So good old Indo-European mm -hmm. uh, logic springs in action. You take it out, it's all whack. Uh, 
that's not the same thing as untying the knot, though. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, that's a typical Indo-European way of, mm -hmm. of approaching a problem. Mm -hmm. Rapid, got an answer right away. Yeah. Not necessarily the one you, <laughs> that's going to solve all the problems. I want to take a moment and say that we're talking with Nilo Kopanen in his home, in his kitchen, uh, near Fairbanks, Alaska. You're listening to Radio Curious, and my name is Barry Vogel. This issue of languages intrigues me. Mm -hmm. um, are you indicating that um, the languages that the native people in this, uh, well, not necessarily in this part of the world, mm -hmm. but native people speak, has a lot to do with the decision-making process and the time and speed? And oh, definitely, and also the fact, uh, for instance, especially among the Inupiaq and Yupik, Mm -hmm. uh, people, that and the decision-making process has to be, um, by and large, collective, you know, the... the where, where do these people live, the Inupiat and uh, Inupiat are the northern Eskimo mm -hmm. uh, along the Arctic Circle mm -hmm. and down uh, to the Seward Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Yupik speakers are um, southern Eskimo, and they live mostly along the Bering Sea, and then, of course, you have related people, the Aleut out in the island and mm -hmm. I islands, and uh, Konyak or Alutik, and Chukakniut, uh, all the way down to, uh, well, historically, they probably went at least as far as uh, Mount St. Elias, because they were, they were the people of Bering initially met. The interior people are Athabascans. Um, they're related to the Navajo. They're probable... They, their language is organized differently, and uh, the society is also... Um, um, if you have a talk about a kinship system among uh, Eskimo, it would be bil bilateral. I mean, it, and, and interestingly enough, so it is among and so on, um, whereas the Athabascans, like Clinkus and others, are matrilineal, and mm -hmm. their language is a little more difficult. It's, it sounds like Pennsylvania Dutch. They, instead of using suffixes, they use affixes, mm -hmm. and um, there are some languages in the Caucasus and Basque. Uh, there are only these three separate sort of groups, plus one isolated group. Uh, in um, get in uh, Siberia, called the Ket, Dinget uh, or Yenisei Ostiaks. Um, I suspect that the Ket who call themselves Dinget are really the ancestral people to the uh, Athabascans, because Dene is the general term by which mm -hmm. Athabascans speak of people. Including themselves, Din or Den, mm -hmm. and if a group calls themselves Din instead of Den or Dene, that mm -hmm. that still shows a relationship. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to talk about in the area of language, but I'm also interested in your experiences as a member of the Alaska State Legislature. Uh, the goals that you hope to achieve while you were there. 
Well, I don't um, think I, I had been involved in politics, you know, on one level or another ever since time. high school. Yeah. So I don't think I had any illusions. At least I can't remember any. I, I did not think that, you know, that I could reform the world through the state legislature, but I thought it was important to, to, uh, to try to, to support, um, you know, the university, public education, uh, the democratization of, uh, um, society and opening up, uh, the political process to, to as many people as possible. What years were you a member of the legislature? From 19, uh, I was elected in 1982, mm -hmm. and uh, I was there 10 years, and I retired uh, in 1990, well, January 93, yeah. uh, which completed the term. My wife had been injured in an automobile accident the, uh, mm -hmm. the previous winter, and uh, so I retired to take care of her. Um, I think I was able to accomplish uh, some things, but nothing global. I did try to get uh, the legislature to pass a resolution favoring uh, a nuclear-free Arctic, and uh, Secretary of State Schultz at that time was apparently affronted enough or had been warned by some of the Republican members that he sent a personal telegram uh, to the, every member of the legislature reminding us or that in his view, uh, state legislatures had nothing to say about international relationships, uh, that is the business of the State Department. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But Even though a nuclear free issue is very personal about what you do on your own land. Yeah. Interesting yeah. enough, the one who picked it up, of course, uh, uh, <laughs> was the Soviet premier. <laughs> I, I don't think that was the only one, but I did work with some of the Canadians and uh, mm -hmm. Greenlanders on the issue. Mm -hmm. Well, taking, for example, the, the uh, way decisions are made in the legislature, it's mm -hmm. by a majority vote. That's what prevails, and in some cases it's a uh, two-thirds vote. How do you see the efficacy of that compared with the consensus way of doing things that you mentioned a little while ago? Well, actually, <laughs> the way, the, you know, you have a two-house legislature, mm -hmm. actually. You have, for all pr practical purposes, you have two separate legislatures, yeah. the House and the Senate. Um, they, um, any bill that gets introduced also has is referred to every pertinent committee, um, the finance committee, you know, regardless if it's going to cost anything, it gets referred, if it makes a difference uh, to the um, action in the, uh, uh, it makes a difference to state statute, it has to be referred to the state affairs committee and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I was, uh, co-chair of the Health and Education Committee for a number of years, and then I got on the Finance Committee because, uh, as I said, almost every bill goes through the Finance Committee. Uh, bills can even be uh, changed in the Rules Committee, and both yeah, houses have sure. rules. So it's not just a simple majority. It means that you have to have a majority in each committee. Um, Lots of simple majorities. Yeah. And uh, so that yields more towards the consensus idea, right? 
consensus presuming everyone in accord. Right. And also, of course, you have to have the agreement of the governor and who can mm -hmm. veto any legislation. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the American system, uh, uh, which uh, was constitutionally devised to be a very difficult uh, system to make any changes mm -hmm. in, one of the problems is it becomes so complex and increasingly complex that uh, it becomes very frustrating uh, and uh, also rather boring for the public, and they, they feel mm -hmm. excluded from the process, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and therefore they lose interest, and then that uh, it means that uh, you don't necessarily get a representative legislature representing knowledgeable citizens. Yeah. Uh, and, and with uh, term limits, you get the um, uh, staff actually running the issues because they carry the continuity of the history. That's an important point. And the Senate is also more powerful because they, they serve a four-year term and a staggered term. Yeah. So there's always a, um, one half the, uh, the Senate is always going to be there. They're making deals before, uh, beforehand on organi uh, yeah. organizing their body. And whereas before, the one-man-one-vote issue came. The Alaska Constitution elected the Senate from the four judicial districts. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, Congress essentially uh, required single-member districts. And the single-member districts uh, for Senate mean two House districts. Well, they're very small. You know, you have at most uh, 30, 30 to 40,000 people mm -hmm. residing in a Senate district. Yeah. And so given that they are going to have a continuity, they also become very interested in uh, pork barrel issues for their limited mm -hmm. uh, funds for their constituents. Right. Yeah. So the result is that uh, the Senate really in this state, and I presume in many states that similarly organized, uh, no longer take a broader view whereas the original intent of the state constitution, at least, was to make the Senate more broadly representative of the citizens of the state. When we had the Constitutional Convention, which I helped organize but was defeated in running for, one of the things that I got in there was that not only was, were the 55 members of the Constitutional Convention um, sitting in a, unit, in a single unicameral body, but they were elected some from... Uh, small localities, some from the uh, judicial districts, and the, uh, uh, <clears throat> mm -hmm. the final third of them elected statewide, so that you had people who represented different right. kinds of constituencies. We don't have much time left, but before we close, I want to ask you um, about the Native Land Claims Movement and the successes and defeats they've had in the past. Uh, couple of years? Well, actually, <clears throat> it began the modern land claims movement. There was a movement in southeastern Alaska, uh, which William Paul was in. They were suing for the value of the land uh, taken from them. And actually, the lawsuit in the 50s was for $7 million only. Mm -hmm. But um, Judge Wickersham, in 1912, had called the... Tanana chiefs 
together and told them to start applying for um, native claims um, under the uh, Allotment Act. And um, Wickersham was a progressive Republican, a Teddy Roosevelt uh, type. And with the Harding administration, that stopped and nothing happened. In 1955, after the Constitutional Convention, a group of us were uh, meeting in a political convention when uh, three members of the Atna Copper River Native Group came and asked for our help in, in getting their um, land back, which they'd uh, let the military use during the war. That got us involved, primarily Quakers. Uh, we invited uh, the Indian Rights Association, Ted Hetzel, to come up here. Uh, he looked at the situation and said, we need the help of the American Association on Indian Affairs. Uh, parenthetically, my wife's uncle, was on the board of directors mm -hmm. and came up here. And um, he financed the founding of the Tundra Times. We call the second Tanwar Chiefs Conference. So the beginning of the Native Land Claims real movement was here in Fairbanks, Interior, Alaska, in uh, the late 50s, and uh, mixed uh, Native and mm -hmm. uh, so-called white groups principally mm -hmm. pushed by political dissonance and Quakers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, we're about the end of our time. I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? That I've read lately? My gosh, I read... <laughs> right now, I'm... One interesting book. Gracious. I'm afraid I read so many of them and find them all interesting that I can't really tell you. Actually, I'm looking forward to the book, um, biography of <coughs> Ernest Morgan, son of the Morgan who was the head of TVA. I knew the Morgans in Yellow Springs, Ohio. They were involved with... Uh, Progressive politics and the and the friends meeting and uh, worker controlled industry, anti-act book play mm -hmm. company, things like mm -hmm. that. And uh, to me, uh, they were in many ways uh, my mentors. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ernest is now 92 years old. They had started a school up in the mountains of North Carolina at Silo, the Arthur Morgan School, after his father. And that's the biography of er Ernest Morgan. Ernest Morgan and the life of Elizabeth Morgan, his mm -hmm. wife. Well, Nilo Kopanen, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Oh, enjoyed it. <laughs> Nilo Kopanen is a native of New York City, the son of Finnish immigrants who moved to Fairbanks, Alaska in 1952. He became a university professor and a member of the Alaskan legislature. The book that Nilo Kopanen recommends is The Life Story of Elizabeth Morgan by Ernest Morgan. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org.
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.